Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. We're in the middle of a series on the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And so next week is Pentecost Sunday. And so next week we're going to lay hands on people and the power of God is going to come upon them and baptize those who need a, a baptism in the Holy Spirit. If you've never been baptized in the Holy Spirit, I want to encourage you. Prepare your heart this week. God's going to touch you. If you are open to that, the Lord's going to give you that gift, the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And uh, so we're going to teach on that next week. We're going to leave room for ministry time and the fire of God's going to fall. It's going to be a fun service. But before we do that, I want to look at something this morning. I want to look at four expressions of the Spirit, the progressive work of the Spirit in the life of the church. And uh, if you look in Scripture, there's, an, there's interesting metaphors used of the Spirit. Now, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 that it's first the natural and, or the, the physical and then the spiritual. And so we have these pictures in nature. We have this, these pictures in creation that are really God's parables that were left for us so that we can understand the spiritual realm. Uh, you know, the, the idea of a parable is to throw alongside. That's literally what the word means. And the idea is that God's ways are higher than our ways, and so God throws the physical alongside the spiritual. So if we get insight into the physical, we can understand the spiritual. And so we have this metaphor of water in the Scripture uh, giving us a picture of the work of the Spirit in the believer's life. And so we're going to look at that metaf those metaphors this morning because there's a progression in the Christian life. And, and one element of that is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But that is simply a gateway and not a goal. I want to make that very clear. A lot of, you know, when I was raised in a Pentecostal church, and so if you're not careful in Pentecostalism, you can look at that as some kind of goal that, oh, now I've been baptized in the Holy Spirit, I've arrived. And that is not a goal. It's a gateway into the Spirit-empowered life. It's, it's a whole new world for us to discover, but it's merely a mile marker. It's the empowerment of the Spirit to launch us into greater things. And so we're going to look at these four metaphors this morning because they give us a picture of what the Spirit of God is to us as believers. So let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for all that you've done this morning. We thank you for the, the, the things we could celebrate. Lord, the students who went through school, Liz is launching. Lord, all these things, we thank you for it. Now, Lord, we're asking that you would speak to us through your word. Stir us. Lord, I ask that you would stretch our understanding. Lord, that you would provide a framework that you, by your spirit, can fill. In Jesus' name, amen. I was thinking yesterday as I was preparing for the, for the word this morning, Back in 2007, I went to Brazil and uh, went with Randy Clark's ministry. And uh, the first, it was a two-week trip. The first week, we spent the week in Brasilia, Brazil. And uh, the church that we were in, uh, was, it's a wonderful church. Matter of fact, it's become a sister church to us. We've helped them out financially. They've been here to visit. They've addressed the congregation. We've been down there, done, done ministry and, and uh, done conferences down there. It's a great church. Uh, but at the time, I was just being introduced to these people. 
And uh, one of the things they wanted to do was take us out into the country because they have this retreat center that they were launching. And so they had bought this patch of ground way out in the country. Now, Brasilia is an interesting city because it was built in the 70s just from scratch. They, they built a brand new city and then moved several million people into it as their capital. They wanted to move it inland, and it's debatable what, what the motivation was for that. There's different opinions on that. So it's an interesting city because it's very modern in its architecture. Uh, one of the guys that I met on the trip became a good friend of mine. He's a hilarious guy. His comment was that this city was born in an unfortunate time in architectural history because it's an ugly city. It's just very very uh, modern and stark. And, uh, but, so here's this city in the middle of nowhere. So what they did is they bought land out in the country. So we loaded up on this bus and we drove for a long time. And then we drove down this cow path. And I'm thinking, we're never going to get out of here. And we, finally, we get to this destination. We climb out of the bus and we, we climb down in this ditch in the valley. Roger, did you guys go there when you went? Yeah, down in this valley, and we went through a stream bed, and just as I'm, there's a wire overhead, I was going to grab it to steady myself. They said, don't do that. That's a live wire. I thought, thanks for letting me know. And uh, so finally, we get to this retreat center, and they have all these, these rooms that they're, they're building for people to come, and they're going to use it for discipleship and so forth. And years ago, we sent a sizable offering as a church to help them complete that. Well, one of the things they wanted to do, they're a very prophetic church. They wanted to go... And on this mountain, on that land, they wanted us to climb the mountain and make prophetic declarations as, and a prophetic act. We were going to pour out oil and, and so forth. And they're just, they're very prophetic people. So it seemed like a great idea, except that it began to pour. It began to rain. And so here we are. We're out there trekking through the wilderness. And we finally we get to the bottom of the mountain. We got to climb the mountain. And by the time we get up there, we're like drowned rats. You know, here we are, a bunch of Americans. Well, some of the ladies weren't dressed in such a way that they should get wet. They had light-colored T-shirts on, which was not a good... So then you had overweight, pasty white American men taking their shirts off so that the women could wear their, an extra layer of clothing to you know, uh, hide their see-through shirts. And so we were quite a sight. We were all drenched. You got these pasty white, overweight, fat guys dripping with water. You know, We're going to go up and do declarations. It was, it was an interesting time, to say the least. And so by the time we got to the top of this mountain, there were some attitudes. Let it, let's just say that we weren't in a prophetic mood. And uh, so we're up there, and the leaders started praying. And then Randy Clark's representative, I forget his name now. He was, he's a striking Brazilian young man with really long hair. He's this big guy. And, and uh, he got up, and he began to talk to us. And he began to talk about how we see rain as an inconvenience, but all through Scripture, it was viewed as a blessing. Because they were an agricultural society. And it was a matter of life and death to them. So when it rained, they didn't complain. When it rained, it was a sign of God's blessing. And about that time, we're all feeling real convicted, you know. <laughs> the guys are sitting there covering their fat, you know, wet bellies and repenting. <laughs> uh, don't, yeah, maybe we need to pray again. It was... So water is a picture of God's blessing. It, it's, it's a picture of life. It's a source of life. We, 
You know, I think it's 71% of the earth's surface is water. 60% of the human body is made up of water. Water is a matter of life and death. And so it's not a coincidence that God uses water as a metaphor of the life of the Spirit. And we see in Scripture this theme that God begins to weave throughout prophetic history. And we see this in, in Isaiah, we hear this phrase, I will make you drink with joy of the wells of salvation. And so I want to I look this morning at this, this metaphor because we have four metaphors in Scripture. The first of which is the wells of salvation, Isaiah 12, 3. He said, with joy you shall drink from the wells of salvation. Now, that passage is a, is a prophetic passage. It's talking about a time of judgment, but that God would cause the people of Israel to drink with joy from the wells of salvation. And to them it meant something different than it does to you and I. To them it meant that God was going to deliver them and that with joy they would draw on that deliverance. But God was really staking his claim for spiritual salvation for you and I. Because the first drink of the spirit that you and I receive is from the wells of salvation. The first encounter that we have is in the new birth. That it starts with that conviction of the spirit. I remember years ago reading a commentary by Charles Spurgeon. And he was preaching on 2 Corinthians chapter 4 where it talks about that, um, that, it, that God hovers over the deep and he speaks, let there be light and there was light. And, and uh, it says that the, uh, the blinders on our eyes are stripped away and the light of the knowledge of the glory of God is burst upon in our heart. And Charles Spurgeon talked about how what Paul is alluding to is the original creation. He's describing the new creation, our new birth, but he's using as a template the original creation. And if you remember that passage in Genesis chapter 1, it says the spirit of the Lord hovered over the deep and it was formless and void. And the Lord spoke, let there be light, and there was light. And, and then the, the Spirit began to create and create form over creation. And it's a picture of how we get saved. That we were formless and void and in the dark. And the Spirit of God began to hover over us. And it's really good for us to think back on when we got saved and how the Spirit of God began to deal with our hearts. And how He hovers over us over the deep, and God, the word of the Lord comes to us, and it brings light, and it wakes us up, and, and then there's that new creation. Well, that's a picture of us drawing from the wells of salvation. But what Isaiah is telling, is telling us is that's not a one-time thing. When we get saved, we have access to the water of the Spirit. Some time back, I was reading in the book of Isaiah one morning, and the Lord began to speak to me about the hydrological cycle or the, the water cycle in nature. Because the Lord says, my word will not return void. Just as my ways are higher than your ways, so as the, the rain release, is released from the heaven, it doesn't return to me until it's performed its work. And so what Isaiah is alluding to is this water cycle in nature. That it starts in the heavens, it's released on the earth, it brings forth fruit, and then the plants release that water back to, to the heavens, and there's this water cycle. And the more growth there is, the more 
is released and the more clouds that are formed. So in reality, water breeds water and growth breeds growth. That's why you have in Brazil, you have the Amazon rainforest and you have in North Korea the barren wilderness because of deforestation. They've taken all the trees out so there's nothing to pull in the next cloud. So what is this saying? What he's saying is that you have access to the wells of salvation. That your, your new birth gives you access to the Spirit. And with joy you drink from him. And it will result in the other expressions of the Spirit in your life. But it starts with salvation. The fact is that the majority of water in the earth is in the oceans and under the ground in hidden caverns. Matter of fact, in the United States of America, well, in, the North, in, in uh, North America, there is more water under the ground than in all the body of waters above the ground. Now, I'm not talking about the oceans. I'm talking about on the continent itself, including the Great Lakes. Now, if you've ever been to the Great Lakes, I was born and raised in Duluth, and it looks like an ocean. You can see those international boats coming as a little dot on the horizon, and they get bigger and bigger. It takes you days to drive around that thing. But there's more water under the ground than there is above the ground in bodies of water. God only made a limited amount of water when he made creation. Much of it is stored under the ground. And so how do we access that? We drill wells. And we access that, and that's the way that we water the ground. That's the way we sustain our lives. And so the wells of salvation are a picture of that initial expression or that initial access of the Spirit of God. And you need to understand that what you received in salvation of the Spirit of God is something you drink from again and again. Getting, I was just praying last night at the prayer meeting. I was out crying out to God. I was saying, God, save us all over again. Arrest our hearts again. Jesus arrested my attention in 1983. He did it through tremendous crisis, the mess I'd made of my life. But I want him to arrest my attention again. I want him to save me from myself again and again and again. I want to drink from those wells of salvation. And we need to pray for that. He wants to, he wants to water the weary land when I first became the pastor of this church, God began to speak to me about drilling a well, drilling a well. And those of you that have been around here since I've been the pastor probably remember me talking about this phrase, that we need to drink from other people's wells while we dig our own. And that's why we would go to conferences. We'd go to Toronto and we'd go to Kansas City and we were going wherever we heard God was pouring out because we were busy digging our own well here, but we were digging or drinking from the labors of others. And God wants you to establish a well. There's a little verse in the book of Genesis. I don't remember the, the chapter and ver where it's at, but it says that Isaac built an altar, set up a tent, and dug a well. Now that'll preach. Not this morning, but that'll preach. He built an altar, set up a tent, and he dug a well. That was the first thing they would do when they would come to a spot. They knew we have to dig a well because that is a matter of life and death. We've got to find water. And there's a well of salvation that we can continually draw from. So much so that some people will tell you, you get it all when you're saved. 
And there is truth in that in one sense. In one sense. You do get it all, but you don't get to access it all in that salvation experience. Look with me to John chapter 7. Let's turn there. John chapter 7. Because in John 7, he talks about the rivers of living water that will flow from us. And so whereas in the wells of salvation, that's, that's where we get it in salvation... In the baptism of the Spirit, we, get, we release that rivers of living water. Now, theologians will, if you get, get out and Google this, man, you'll get into all kinds of theological debates. You'll get in on them. Where is there a difference between the indwelling Spirit and the infilling of the Spirit? Some people say no, that's the same thing. Others will say yes, there's, those, are, those are two different expressions. And the fact is you can look at it both ways. We get it all in salvation in accessing the waters of salvation or in the well of salvation. But you need to unpack it in that second experience of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. We looked at it last week. And those that confuse that and say that these are one and the same often do so based on that verse we looked at last week. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. Because it says we are baptized in his spirit into one body. And so they say, well, if you're baptized into the body when you're baptized in the spirit, then you must, that must be when you're getting saved because that's when you're placed in the body. But we looked very clearly last week. You can access it on our Facebook page. And the PowerPoint is on that, on that video. You can see that there's a formula throughout Scripture. We're baptized in a substance into an experience. And baptism is always after the fact. John baptized people into repentance only after they were repentant. Christians are baptized into Christ's death only after they've been placed in his death through salvation. We don't baptize people to get them saved. We don't baptize people to put them into Christ's death. We baptize them as a validation that they are in his death. And there's a, it's a prophetic act which activates the reality of that very thing. The same is true. So when we understand water baptism, the first time we see this this. Uh, this idea of spirit baptism was in Luke chapter 3 when John the baptizer said, I baptize you with water, but the one coming after me will do the same with the Holy Ghost and fire. And so John in saying that forever intertwines these two baptisms. He's saying if you want to understand spirit baptism, understand water baptism. This is the parable, the physical, to what Jesus will do in the spiritual and so when keeping with that phrase, that formula, we're baptized in a substance into an experience only after the fact, then that verse clearly speaks of the baptism in the Holy Spirit as separate from salvation. We're baptized in the substance of the Spirit, but we're baptized into the body of Christ after the fact, after salvation. And it's one of the great missing elements in our Pentecostal theology. Because one of the purposes of the baptism in the Holy Spirit is to activate your role in the body of Christ by imparting to you supernatural gifting that will determine your function and your role in the body. Does that make sense? And so it's something we really need to understand. And so John here... Listen, he records Jesus' message. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. 
Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Verse 39. By this he meant the spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up till that time, the spirit had not yet been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. And so we know that Jesus, as the glorified Christ, is the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. We have this this picture in Scripture, theologically. Everything comes from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. God thought it, Jesus bought it, and the Spirit brought it. That's a little more homespun. It's... The Father sent the Son, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son. But it's the Son, Jesus himself, who sends the Spirit. He is the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. And he was the one who said to his disciples, he said, It's better for you that I leave, because then I'm going to send another like unto myself. So it was Jesus who sent the Spirit to us. And he is the one who baptizes us in the Spirit. And so we see in John chapter 20, you remember the the story where Jesus, after he'd been crucified, buried, he resurrects, and Peter and John had gone to the tomb. They found it empty. Mary had gone to the tomb to anoint his body with, uh, you know, to pack his, his burial clothes. And she went, and the tomb had been, the stone had been rolled away, and Jesus was gone. And, and she saw an angel, and the angel spoke to her. And she ends up encountering Jesus. She didn't realize it, was, realize it was him at first. He was in his glorified body. She ran back to the disciples to tell them, hey, Jesus is resurrected. And they couldn't believe it. It was too much for them to believe. And all of a sudden in John 20, Jesus walks through the wall and he presents himself to them. And he said, fear not. Look at my hands inside. He's saying, it's really me. And then it says in John 20, he breathed upon them and they received the Holy Spirit. We know that was distinct from Acts chapter 2 because Jesus had already resurrected. In Acts chapter 1, he said, wait in Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. That's King James. Until you receive power. The gift my Father has promised to you. And so Jesus went up into the clouds, ascended. They went into the upper room in Acts chapter 2 and the Spirit fell upon them because they were baptized in the Spirit by Jesus. So we see very clearly... John chapter 20, before Jesus' ascension, they received the Spirit in measure, but in Acts chapter 2, they received it in fullness. In John chapter 20, they drank from the wells of salvation. In Acts chapter 2, they they took the drink and a river of living water was released from their belly. So we see this distinction. We see it in Acts chapter 8 where, the, where there were converts that the disciples later on came and laid hands on them and they were baptized in the Spirit. We see it in Acts chapter 19. Uh, again, they, were, they received the Spirit after they believed. And so we have this picture. So John says, uh, he, he quotes Jesus, if anyone is thirsty, let him come and drink. And so we drink from the wells of salvation, but that drinking of the Spirit is going to release from us a river. We drink from the Spirit who becomes our source, and we become a living, walking source ourselves. Again, we talked last week that receiving the Spirit in salvation, we receive the Spirit in measure. 
And that's a stumbling block for some people. They say, well, how can you receive a person in measure? Well, I don't know if I can explain it, but I'm still figuring my wife out. I got her in measure the day we said I do. 30 years later this year, I'm still figuring her out. I got a little more fullness, but I don't have it all figured out yet. I'm receiving her in measure. Scripture uses this terminology of the Spirit of God, of Jesus, and of the Father. The fullness of God, the fullness of Christ, and the fullness of the Spirit. And it talks about the measure of the gift of Christ. The very fact that it talks about us receiving the fullness implies that the original reception was only in measure. Here's the point. If you don't get anything else, here's the point. There's always more. Okay? Be hungry. There's always more. There's always more to be discovered in God. God is not a package that you, you got in the mail and now you got it all. He is a living being. He is a person that, through which, with whom we can have a relationship. And there's an unfolding relationship with this infinite God. And because he's infinite, there's always more. And so we drink of him Jesus invites us, come and drink. Now, we're going we're gonna to bring people forward next week for the baptism in the Holy Spirit because I want to honor Pentecost Sunday. I know we could do it this week. You know, like we want to do it this week, but I want to honor Pentecost Sunday. But listen to Jesus' invitation here. If anyone is thirsty, that's the question. Do you want more of him? Are you hungry for more? Are you thirsty to get everything that he has for you. Well, he gives you this instruction. He asks you a question. If you're thirsty, then let him come and drink. When he says let him come, what he's saying is you are responsible for closing the distance between you and I. That's what he's saying. You move closer to me. You make the effort. You come and you drink You make a demand upon the Spirit of God. You already have access to the wells of salvation. But as you come and in faith you begin to drink, that drink becomes a river that is released from your your belly, your innermost man. Miss Sandra Collier, remember Miss Sandra? She was, man, I tell you what, Sandra's a Holy Ghost woman. And uh, she was such a strange person to me when I met her. She was full of joy and walked in the power of God. She would read people's mail. I'd never been around a person like that. She'd just go through singing in the spirit. And she, all of a sudden, she'd look at someone, oh, and she'd tell them something from their childhood or some secret thing they were thinking about. And she would always grab her belly. She told me one time, she said, David, this is where your spirit man, and I don't know if it's theologically right, but I think this is the scripture that backs it up. But she said, David, this is where your spirit man is. It's in your belly. You can feel him jump. She said, that's where you release it from. Well, Jesus said, out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water. You are called to be a source. So then from there, we have the indwelling spirit that we receive at salvation. He's in us. We are in or, or he's in us. The Spirit is indwelling us. And then we are baptized in the Spirit. That's the infilling. Now we are in the Spirit. And that is two different theological ideas. Two different realities. The Spirit is in us in salvation. And that's why we are born again. His Spirit gives the genetic code of the divine nature. Peter said we are partakers of the divine nature. We're born again. 
The spirit is in us, but that's in measure. Again, it's like taking a drink. But when we're baptized in the spirit, we're submerged in him. He becomes the environment in which we dwell. And now we're in the spirit. And that is a whole nother lifestyle. The spirit-filled life. Where to, he is to be our environment. We're to live and move and have our being in him. Everything we do is to be in the spirit. A lot of times people will say, they'll, they'll refer to speaking in tongues as praying in the spirit. That is scripturally inaccurate. Everything we do is to be in the spirit. You are to pray in the spirit with your native tongue and your gift of tongues. It's more accurately, you see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, where Paul says, I will pray with my spirit and with my understanding. Praying in the spirit is simply being being led by and energized by the spirit of God in our prayers. But praying with your spirit is the language Paul uses for us to use the gift of tongues. Literally, it's your spirit, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, your spirit and the spirit of God are joined together. They're wed together. That's why in the New Testament, often there's debate on passages whether this mention of the spirit, if that is referring to the human spirit of the believer or the Holy Spirit of God. And some translations have a capital S and some will have a little s. And it really doesn't matter. We don't need to make that distinction because in the internal man, the Spirit of God is wed to my spirit. And so when I am moving in the gifts of the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, literally my spirit is praying. That's why in that same passage in 1 Corinthians 14, you'll read this. It'll say that the spirit of a prophet is subject to a prophet. It says, let one prophesy and the others judge. And at the most, let two or three prophecies in a meeting. And he said, let the spirit of that prophet be subject to the prophet. What is he saying there? Is he saying that the spirit of God is subject to us and we are the Lord over the spirit? No, what he's saying is that when you are prophesying, it is literally, it's not only a function of the spirit of God coming upon you, but it's literally a function of your human spirit. That when you're praying in tongues, your spirit man who lives in a higher plane than your mere understanding Our mind doesn't understand everything. I love how Tozer put it. He said, sometimes when we're in worship, we have to leave our mind, let our mind humbly remain outside where our heart goes into worship. We'll just tell our mind, sorry, buddy, but this is beyond you. You pat him on the head condescendingly and you go in and you worship with your spirit. Our, our, our mind can't comprehend everything. Often, our mind is trying to catch up with what our spirit has already received. I've shared with you before when Sandra Collier, she, when she first got baptized in the Holy Spirit, she had this prayer partner, and they would go and they would pray in tongues. And, and uh, as they were doing that one day, her friend stopped her and said, Sandra, do you speak French? She said, no. She said, yes, you do. She said, you were speaking perfect French. I had it in college. And Sandra was excited because Sandra had been really going after the things of God. And she had been praying a specific prayer. She had been asking the Lord, God, give me a new heart. I want a new heart. When she asked her friend, what did I say in my prayer language? She said, you were thanking God for your new heart. Isn't that beautiful? In English, she's praying for something. Her mind is longing for something her spirit knows she already has. 
And she didn't need something. What she needed, the something she needed was understanding that she already had what she was asking for. So our mind doesn't understand things that our spirit does. And so that's why Paul says, I will pray with my spirit and with my understanding. We will pray. When we prophesy, there's times, uh, many of you have experienced it. I've said things to people and then I'm like, oh man, should I have said that? You know, it's like, oh, if I'd have thought about it a minute, I wouldn't have prophesied that. But your spirit is picking up on things through the Holy Spirit that your mind doesn't understand. And so we need to be moving with the Spirit. We need to keep in step with the Spirit, Paul says. All this language of the Spirit-filled life, well, that is not entered into merely by a sinner's prayer and conversion. That's entered into by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. When we are saved, he resides within us. But when we're baptized, we're submerged into him. And we're to live there from then on. And not only do we live in this this environment of the Spirit, but we become a source of supply. It never runs dry because this river of living water is always filling the environment that we're in. And that's the, that's the picture that Jesus is giving us. So we have the indwelling and the infilling. Or we're the spirit in us and us in the spirit. And then we have rain. The rain of the spirit. There's a number of scriptures that we can pull from on this. Uh, Zechariah. Uh, talks about pray for rain in the time of rain. In other words, when we, uh, and, and the idea is this, there are seasons that it was to rain. There's been a lot of teaching over, uh, especially in the modern Pentecostal movement, and especially back in the, the late 40s, early 50s, there was a tremendous outpouring that started in Canada, the Northwest part of the United States. It was, it was known as the Latter Rain Movement. And it was a, a tremendous outpouring of the Spirit. Uh, it restored a lot of teaching on the fivefold ministries, very prophetic, and was rejected by and large by many Pentecostal movements. Because often throughout church history, there's a wave that comes out of a wave that comes out of a wave. And the leaders of the last move become the persecutors of the next one. And God is looking for those who are hungry enough to want the next thing because there's always more. And out of that move came a lot of teaching about the latter rain. And it was this picture from Scripture that there is the former and the latter rain. The former rain was the rain that, that, was, that would rain uh, in spring that would cause the seed, uh, the, the seed that was planted to take root. And so what happens is a seed has to soak up water and the inside of the seed becomes bigger than its external shell. It outgrows its limitations and it breaks open. And once that is broken, it's called the breaking of dormancy and the life of a seed now is kicked into action and it begins to feed on the internal nutrients and it begins to absorb water. And two things happen. It sends up a shoot and it sends down a root. And it kicks into the next phase where that thing begins to feed off the environment. But that's the idea. It was the the former rain that would break the dormancy of a seed. And so the, the idea was that the church of Jesus Christ was established with an outpouring at Pentecost where the seed was broke open and the church took root. 
And the, the idea behind the, the latter rain was that before the end of the age would come, become a tremendous outpouring because Jesus himself said in Matthew 24, the end times is the harvest. The greatest harvest in human history is going to be at the end of the age. Now I want you to think about this for a moment. There are more people living on planet earth right now than at any other time in human history. If you just Google that and begin to look at the trajectory of human, uh, the population growth, do you really believe that God would leave this pregnant moment of human history unseized? Do you really believe that God wouldn't visit humanity at its, at its greatest moment? We have the greatest potential to populate heaven and plunder hell. There is going to be a latter rain outpouring. The only problem I have with that theology, because there's some that preach it in such a way there was the former and the latter and a lot of desert in between. I believe there's the rain all throughout history. There are, there are ebbs and flows of the Spirit because what happens is God pours out, we establish what he, what he poured out upon, and then there's the next wave. But make no mistake about it, the greatest revival in human history will be at the end of the age. God is going to come back for a church that was, is without spot or wrinkle. It's not going to be a defeated bride. It's going to be a bride that is taking dominion and seeing tremendous harvest. And so this picture we have here is of the reign of the Spirit. We use this all the time, outpourings of the Spirit. So we have, we have the wells of salvation. We have the rivers of living water. And then we have the reign of the Spirit. Now, if you notice, these first two, indwelling and infilling, or the Spirit in us and us in the Spirit, is largely an individual encounter. It's an individual experience. We're saved as an individual. There's the old saying, God has no grandchildren. you got to have your own new birth experience. We're saved as an individual. We're baptized as an individual. But this thing of the reign of the Spirit... The outpourings is in reality a corporate baptism of the Spirit. It's when God in and mass begins to release a fresh baptism on a group of people. But all of these expressions are dependent one upon another. It begins with a man or a woman getting saved and drinking from the wells of salvation. But there's a thirst in them like Jesus said. If you thirst, come. There are people who get saved and they're satisfied. And there's others who a little taste ruins them for life. And they say, God, I've got to have more. There's got to be more. You see it all down through history. People who just intuitively knew, God, there's got to be more to life than this. I need more of you. This ravenous hunger is released in them. And they break into the baptism of the Spirit. And then they, they're crying out for more. So what happens is we enter into personal revival called the baptism in the Holy Spirit, which causes us to cry out for more, which releases corporate revival or a corporate baptism in the Spirit. And that's what God wants to release to us. He wants to release a hunger, a ravenous hunger in you that you're never satisfied with what you have. I believe that what's going to bring Jesus back in this, his second coming is the, 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 this desperate cry from the worldwide bride. 
I believe that we're going to be crying out to him for revival. And so, so wrecked by his presence and so ravenously hunger for more that we keep saying, Lord, more, we need more of you. Until the point where Jesus says, I can't give them any more unless I come in in person. And that he breaks in as a result of our praying, come Lord Jesus. But it, it, it's on the heels of a tremendous global revival, which is in actuality a corporate baptism in the Spirit. And then we have this fourth interesting expression. Did a series on it a few years ago. And that is the dew of Hermon. Psalm 133. Now I've wrestled with what to call this because this really is the ultimate expression that God is after. So as the first one we call salvation, the second one spirit baptism, the third one revival, the fourth one we call corporate maturity. And in a very real sense, if the first one is an individual indwelling, and the second one is an individual infilling, then the third one is a corporate infilling, and the final one is a corporate indwelling. Literally where the Holy Spirit dwells within us as a people. Where when we gather together, the presence of God manifests, whether it is reigning in revival or not. What God is looking for is a people that so walk in unity together and in honor one to another. Where where Paul says, keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Why? Because we realize what we forfeit if we don't. We forfeit the dew of heaven. All through scripture you see this phrase. Look it up sometime. Whereas Psalm 133 says, how blessed it is when brethren dwell in unity together. It is like the oil that flows down Aaron's beard to the hem of his garments. It's like the dew of Mount Hermon, as if the dew of Mount Hermon would fall on Mount Zion. He calls it the dew of Hermon. But if you look that phrase up in Scripture and in a concordance and begin to look for other expressions of this dew, You'll see this phrase, the dew of heaven, the dew of heaven, the dew of heaven. What is that? Well, you know when it's, there's a lot of dew on the ground, you look outside and it's like there's a fog. It's like the clouds that are usually off in a distance and in the heavens have come down. And it's beca- the air has become so weighty with water that it can no longer hold it in the invisible that it begins to manifest in a fog, a mist in the air. And finally, it's so heavy that it begins to drop it on the ground. And manifestations of water begin to show up in the form of what we call dew. And David tells us that that dew is signified, or it's a picture of us living in unity together. When the Lord first, I I had a, a series of encounters with the Lord on this that began at the altar one day when we were in prayer. And as the Lord began to speak to me about this passage, I was so just almost troubled by that phrase. It was as if the dew of Mount Hermon would fall on Mount Zion. And I kept asking the Lord, God, what, what is that? Why? What, is, what does that have to do with anything? The dew of one mountain falling on another. 
And I kept asking the Lord about it for weeks until one day it was like a big duh hit me. You ever had a duh moment in the spirit? Because I knew it was physically impossible for the dew of Hermon to be transferred to Mount Zion. They're too far apart. But that is just the point. When there is unity, the dew of the breakthrough of one mountain is visited upon another. When we come into unity together, your victory becomes my victory, and my victory becomes your victory. And there's a multiplication of those victories. There's a multiplication of gifts. I am not, I'm not left merely with my own spiritual gifts. I'm not left merely with my own revelation, but because I'm in relationship with you, I have access to your gifts and your revelation. And when we develop an environment of honor and humility, when we have an environment where there's unity, what happens is, is there's a mixture of gifts that literally releases a dew. And the Lord told me during that season, he said, it is my non-disruptive way of nourishing the land. And then he told, the, told me this, and I was shocked when he said it, because it really messed with my revival theology. He said, outpourings were made necessary by the fall. It never rained in paradise. Paradise was watered by hidden caverns under the ground that would emit a mist, and it was called paradise and that is what that fourth expression is God's wanting to take us back to that place where we're not dependent upon the next outpouring outpourings are great but they are very disruptive and you cannot live a a productive life day in and day out in the midst of a tremendous outpouring some of you will remember the days of the Brownsville revival when that thing first broke. They would go to church at 6 p.m. Uh, or 7 p.m. at night, and they would leave church at 6 a.m. when the sun was coming up. And then they would go to work. It was unsustainable. It was glorious. But they had to rein it in because that type of outpouring was unsustainable. When there's a drought, we're thankful for the rain. But even in the midst of a drought, when it's pouring down rain... We wait to go out to our car hoping that it'll let up for a moment so we can get to the car. Why? Because it's disruptive. Outpourings of the Spirit are not the ultimate thing that God is after. He is after that corporate infilling where he literally resides in our midst as a people. That we're not asking to get something God to release something, we already have access to it in each other. You are the answer to my prayer, and I'm the answer to your prayer. I'm not asking God for wisdom. I'm going to you for the wisdom you have, because God's already put the answer to my prayer in you. And here's the thing. If we're not walking in a baptism of the Spirit, which is a baptism of love, we will violate unity, and we will forfeit the treasure that one another carries. And so we're left dependent upon the next revival. Rather than realizing that the answer to my heart cry sits next to me in church. And that unity is a higher level of maturity that says, I am going to appreciate and capitalize on what you are and not stumble over what you're not. I refuse to forfeit what you are over what you're not. I'm going to cover with grace your weaknesses, your failings, because I so value what you carry. And when God, that's why I call this corporate maturity. It really is 
a corporate infilling where literally the body of Christ is filled with the Spirit. And whenever we come together, there is a greenhouse effect of quick growth, quick deliverance, quick freedom, tremendous revelation. Not because we're in the middle of revival and there's an outpouring, but it's because of what we have in one another. And that's what God wants to give us. But all of these are dependent upon one another. We can't have that until we first drink from the wells of salvation. And once we drink from the wells of salvation, we need to come to Jesus and say, Lord, we're so hungry, we want more. And he'll release that river of supply. So I have something to bring to the table to meet your need, and you have something to bring to the table to meet mine's. And then we begin to cry out to God, and God will give us those seasons of outpouring where there's that corporate baptism. But what he really wants to bring us into is a corporate fullness of the Spirit. Those are the churches the world is longing to see. Amen? Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, I'm asking God that as we go through this teaching, Lord, that you would stir up a hunger within our heart. I want you to put your hand on your belly right now. Lord, I ask that you'd stir up a hunger in our heart, Lord. God, make us thirsty. Lord, help us to realize you are the infinite, holy creator of the universe. There is so much more than our puny little minds can comprehend. But still you say to us, if any man is thirsty, let him come. Let him drink, and out of his belly shall flow rivers. Lord, we're asking that you would release a river out of us as individuals and out of this house corporately that would go to the nations of the earth. Hallelujah. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.